All right, we come now to Hebrews chapter 7. And as we arrive there in your Bibles, I want you to think for a moment, set the stage. We've been speaking for quite some time about the greatness of Christ. From the very beginning of this book of Hebrews, it's been about the greatness of Christ, the exceeding greatness. And it compares into many Old Testament figures or shadows or types and says he's greater than all of them because he is the antitype. He is the one that they point to. He is the one that what they have accomplished or, or are shown to do really culminates in the work of Christ. One of the ones in that was Aaron. And we've had a number of times we referred back to the fact that Christ is greater than Aaron in many ways. We could recount them probably, couldn't we, about how the ministry of Aaron was hampered, if you will, by its very nature of being a human and fleshly priesthood, one that was ended by death. No matter how great any particular priest would be, you might say, we're living under the greatest priest the Levitical priesthood has ever seen. Guess what? He's going to die eventually. And now someone will take his place who may not be as good as he is. So many things we've looked at through the last several chapters to point to, if you will, what this author will today call the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood. It isn't sufficient. It isn't enough. It had a purpose, an important purpose. But again, Aaron is surpassed by Christ. Aaron is a type of Christ. His priesthood is a type of the greater priesthood of Melchizedek. And this author has been pointing to this over and over again. In fact, he comes to the end of chapter 5 and says, I'd like to tell you much more about this, but you're not prepared. You're not ready. So then he teaches through the end of chapter 5 and 6 and now comes back to say, okay, now we'll talk about it. And we come to see that there's a significance to Melchizedek. Why? Well, many things that we could point to make him stand apart, stand out and be noticed, right? He is called the king of Salem. There's a double importance there. Salem is the city that will eventually, or the area that will eventually become Jerusalem. Salem is the word for peace, so he's the king of peace. His name means king of righteousness. He is a king and a priest. He is a priest of the Most High God. Abraham recognized his greatness and tithed unto him. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Right, so there's a lot of things there that would have you go. There's something significant that happened in these couple of verses. All of that is important. And that Melchizedek is without beginning or without end, according to this author. He says there's no genealogy that shows where he was born. There's no record of him dying. Therefore, as a type, he was never born and never died. Now, we know literally he, if he was a man, he had a, a birth and a death. But it's saying as a type of Christ, he is without record of beginning, without record of ending, which points to what? A priesthood that didn't begin and doesn't end. An eternal priesthood. And so again, the idea here being that it points not to the Levitical priesthood, but to a greater priesthood. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now all of that has been established in what we looked at two weeks ago, 1 through 10. And we've preached that many times around Christmas and so on and so forth. Uh, so we recognize the importance of Melchizedek. Today we want to come back to these verses we read just a moment ago and look at what it builds upon from there. Because this author does build upon it. He says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. 
And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. All right, so as we think about this today, I want us to think about two points broadly and hopefully briefly. First of all, the need of another priesthood. Evident right in the text that there is a need of another priesthood. Aaron wasn't enough. The Levitical priesthood was not enough. And second of all, the appearance of a better hope. So as we begin today, we want to start right where this starts. We want to recognize that it builds upon what's been said about the difference between the priesthood of Levi and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he says that there's something about this priesthood that is self-evident to us in the Scriptures. There should be, if we're reading carefully, there should be something self-evident to us. And we've already seen, we've already talked about it just a moment ago, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of Aaron. In fact, when we looked at this text two weeks ago, it was established in the text, wasn't it? Very clearly, this author said we can establish it through something that we can say about an event that happened in Genesis chapter 14, which is Melchizedek and Abraham encountered one another. And when they did, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, meaning he recognized something about Melchizedek. But as we talked about in that sermon, a point was being made about Levi. Levi is a descendant of Abraham. And therefore, the author says, he is in the loins of Abraham when Abraham did that. So in other words, as if, as if Levi recognized uh, himself the greater nature of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, Louis and I were talking about it after church that Sunday, and he recognized in that the federal language, right, a federal headship, that what is true of Abraham is true of all his descendants in that covenant that he made. That's a very biblical picture and term. We say that we all fell in Adam. Why? Because Adam is our federal head, right? We all stood in Adam. As Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. In the same way, when Abraham, uh, in this covenant, does something, all his descendants, in a sense, are doing it. So when we say that Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek, that's no different than saying Levi, who was in him, recognized the greater state of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Nehemiah Cox words it this way, this could not be reckoned to him, meaning Levi paying tithes to Melchizedek, if he had not been in Abraham considered as a head of some covenant transaction in which Levi was covenanted for by Abraham. So that's how we get there, right? That's what the text is arguing. Because Levi is within Abraham, covenantally speaking, then what is true of Abraham becomes true of Levi. When Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi in, in Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek. So again, Levi himself recognizes. This is what the author is trying to say. Levi himself recognizes that Melchizedek was greater. And you may remember that language, it's two weeks ago, that in essence, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, pay tithes to a descendant of Abraham. But Abraham, or Levi through Abraham, paid tithes to someone outside of Abraham. So again, that sets Melchizedek apart as greater. Again, that's what the author is arguing. The Melchizedek is greater. Abraham recognized it. In him, Levi recognized it. All in Abraham should recognize it. Okay? 
All right, so that's important to recognize. So we've argued plainly what the text argues, that Melchizedek has a greater priesthood than Aaron. The Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now that's important. But there's something more uh, if you think about it for a moment here, because what the author begins to say is, therefore, now that's language we understand, right? Based on what's just been argued, based on the fact that Levi himself, or anyone should recognize biblically and theologically, Melchizedek is greater. Therefore, there's a question that arises. If perfection, now that word perfection comes from completeness. It gives the idea of if if it could be completed in the Levitical priesthood, if God's plan could be completed, brought to fruition in Levitical priesthood, then here's a question. What further need is there of another priest from another priesthood? Why would God need to say, when I bring the Messiah, he will be a priest forever according to a different order? If the Levitical priesthood was effectual, if the Levitical priesthood could accomplish everything God wanted to accomplish, then why is there the need of a promise of another priesthood that will one day be found in the person of the Messiah? And so that's, again, immediately the point he's trying to get at here. There is a need for another priesthood. What God intended to accomplish from the beginning could not be accomplished through the Levitical priesthood. It was never intended that it would be. This is not a failing in God. This is not God couldn't bring it about, so he's got to go with a plan B. He is arguing here God never intended the Levitical priesthood to be the final priesthood. How do we know that? He mentions Melchizedek before Levi ever was born. He set this type in place in Genesis. Long before there was any idea of a law, an old covenant, before there was any idea in mankind of Levi or this uh, Levitical priesthood, even before that, God gives us Melchizedek on the scene as a type of this later priesthood. And again, to point out that there's no failing in God, but it was always His intention. The thing that this author also wants to point to is that it should be obvious that this was God's intention, and it should be obvious to us that there's a need of it. Because when would you argue the Levitical priesthood was in its glory days? Would it not be under David? Maybe Solomon, but certainly around that time frame, right? You would say, wow, this Levitical priesthood is running great here in Jerusalem. We have uh, the tabernacle, eventually under Solomon, the temple. But in those days, in those days, Psalm 110 is written, in which it says the Messiah will come and he will be a priest forever, not according to the order of Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek. This is no failing in God. This was His plan from the beginning. The Levitical priesthood and the law that it uh, was attached to had a purpose. But its purpose was temporary. And for the greater purpose of God, it was not effectual. And so that's the entire point here. It had its time. It had its purpose. And now the fullness has come. Now the fullness has come. So again, the, this is shown to us in Psalm 110 that God's intention always that there would be a priest after another order. And again, that helps us to make sense of this significant character in Genesis, who before Psalm 110, whatever scriptures you would have collected, you would have said, where does that character go? What happens to him? He seems kind of significant, but he's just dropped from history. And even from the standpoint of the New Testament, in the days of Christ, you would look back and say, we've got that little reference in Genesis, and we've got one reference in Psalm 110, and that is it. And yet this author says, look at what all God is showing us in those tiny references. So again, this is incredibly important. He's not of the order 
of Levi, but of a greater order, the order of Melchizedek. All those things show that Melchizedek is a type, and the antitype or fulfillment of that type is in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of what is pictured in Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a man, a, a king and a priest, had a great name and governed an area that would later be Jerusalem, all these significant things, but their significance is not found in themselves, are they? I mean, it would have been significant, I guess, if you were living in Salem at the time. But for us, the significance is not in Melchizedek himself, but what he shows us about Christ, what he points to about Christ. So this author says, if you read Genesis and if you read Psalm 110, you could begin to put the pieces together. Now, most didn't, and that's the problem. But he's saying you certainly can, and we are today, aren't we? We're looking back and saying, okay, these puzzle pieces go together, and now we see how they point to Christ, who is the King of righteousness and the King of peace and a King priest of the God Most High. He's our mediator, greater than Levi, has a priesthood that is without end. All these things we can point to and recognize. But there's something else that's said here, a further significance found. If you look at verses 11 and 12, you'll see something very important. He says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Notice there's a necessary tying together of the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant priesthood. They can't be separated. You see that? The Old Covenant is administered by the priesthood. In fact, you could argue by the entire uh, Old Testament cultic practice, right, is tied to the covenant itself. You can't separate them. And as you look beyond that, he says this, what further need would there have been for another to rise? But look at what he says in verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. The priesthood and the law are so tightly, or the covenant are so tightly connected that the change one means the changing away of another. You can't have the Levitical priesthood administer the new covenant. Right? It's not possible. That's the reason they had a covenant there that was ineffectual. Right? It was never intended to be a salvific Uh, In other words, you couldn't be saved by the law. Of the law shall no flesh be justified, Paul says. So again, if the priesthood changes, of necessity there must be a change of law. That's how closely they are tied together. And he makes this point, we know this must be true, because in the old covenant, who could minister on behalf of God? Who could be a priest of God Most High, according to the law? Had to be of the tribe of Levi. Right? Nobody could say, well, I'm of Simeon, I'll be a priest. No, it didn't work that way. You had to be of Levi. And he says immediately we know something is different about the ministry of this high priest, Jesus. He sees he's not of Levi, is he? But he's of Judah. And he makes the point, under the old covenant, that wouldn't have worked. He says, Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood related to this tribe. There was never a priest in the Old Testament, if you will, who was working in the temple and who was a a priest who was, in effect, of Judah. They were of Levi. And so he makes this point, as we look at our high priest, there's a change, isn't there? There's a change in covenant, there's a change in precedent, there's a change in law, and there's a change in priesthood. It's not that we're saying the old covenant isn't important, but we're saying the old covenant was pointing to Christ, pointing to the new covenant. Right? It had a purpose in doing that. Paul says the end of the law is Christ Jesus. Right? The purpose, the telos, the aim or goal of the law was Christ. The, 
The law was our pedagogos, our tutor, if you will, that took us by the hand and led us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to point your need of what God was giving us in Christ and that the only effectual salvation for human beings can come through this mediator, Christ. The, the mediation of Levi was never going to be enough. It was never intended to be enough. Now, if you remember our journey through Romans, we talked a lot about this, didn't we? The Levitical priesthood, Levi, the Old Covenant could not avail salvation for us. The New Covenant in Christ is where we have our hope. So again, no other tribe could minister, if you will, in the temple in the Old Covenant. So immediately we say if there is an acceptable high priest from the tribe of Judah, something has changed. That's what this author is trying to say. It's self-evident something has changed. God has accepted it, so it's not as if man's trying to superimpose. In fact, God says himself in Psalm 110 that he swears and will not relent. That's one of the points this author has made. He did not appoint himself. Christ did not appoint himself. Every priest is appointed. Christ is no different. God appointed Christ. I swear and I will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, God said, I find this priest, high priest of the tribe of Judah acceptable. Well, What does that tell you? We're not dealing with the old covenant now, right? We're dealing with something different. There has been a change of law made evident because of a change of priesthood. That's what he directly says. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. It's been fulfilled in Christ. The old covenant, the old priesthood fulfilled in Christ. It pointed to him. And this author even goes so far as to say it's been superseded. Superseded. Now, that's just to simply say it's been fulfilled, right? It's its purpose was to point to Christ. It has been accomplished. That any type is fulfilled in its antitype. That's all he's saying. That the purpose of the Old Testament has been fulfilled when Christ came in the fullness of time and fulfilled the mission of God. Hercules Collins put it this way. This is one of our Baptist forebears. He said, the substance being come, the shadow flies away. So in other words, it doesn't mean, by the way, that the Old Covenant doesn't have significance for us. We're not Andy Stanley up here saying, don't read it, don't worry about it. We're saying, though, importantly, that it points to something greater than itself. It's fulfilled in Christ. The Old Covenant could not really fulfill itself. It pointed to needs that we had that we couldn't meet. It had some some governance, if you will, of a people in a time. But it also pointed to the need of a Savior. This is what this author's been getting at. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. He would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Was it finished? Until next Yom Kippur, when he had to do it again. And the next Yom Kippur, till he had to do it again. And then he would die, and the one who succeeded him would have to do it again, and again, and again, and again. Never finished. But God's intention was that it would one day in Christ be finished. And that's the point. Christ is the fullness. He is the antitype that fulfills all those pictures or types that we've been talking about. And that's largely what Hebrews is talking about repeatedly, isn't it? When he goes through all these things, Joshua was great. Christ is greater. Moses, great. Jesus, greater. Right? All of these are pointing to the same thing. All of these are types that point to the great antitype, the great eternal high priest. So, if you look at verse 16, you'll see here, he says something else. That he has come, not according to a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. Now, think about for a moment 
the difference that he's saying there. There's a difference between these two priesthoods. One passes through earthly curtains. The other, this author says, passed through the heavenly curtains, right? He passed through the heavens to enter into the Holy of Holies. One ministers for a time. We just spoke about that. The other, eternally. The one being passed down generation to generation. The other filled in a single and eternal high priest. Levi gave the shadow or the type of the ministry of Christ. But Christ fulfilled it, exceeds it, is more glorious. I think often about in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about the glory that excels. He talks about the new covenant being so glorious that by comparison it's as if the old covenant had no glory at all. Now we say this every time. It doesn't mean the old covenant had no glory. But he means the glory of the new covenant is so glorious, so glorious that by comparison and standing in the light of the new covenant, it's as if the old covenant had no glory at all. I think in the same vein we would see the the priesthood of Levi being amazing and glorious. God instituted it, but it was as if of no glory at all compared to what Christ has accomplished. No glory at all compared to what Christ has accomplished. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the appearance of a greater hope. The superior priesthood brings with it a superior hope that the Levitical priesthood could never offer. How could we be perfectly reconciled to a holy and righteous God under the old covenant? Good luck with that. Do the law, keep it perfectly, and you'll be in right standing with God. What's the problem there? None of us could accomplish that. It's ineffectual for us because we can't accomplish it. That's why Paul says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But Christ could perfectly fulfill it. Christ could be declared righteous. He could go in our place. Look at verse 18. Because he says, on the one hand, there's two things that happen in this that we need to recognize. Uh, As he comes to verse 18, he says, for on the one hand, there is the annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now, I want you to stop there just for a second before we look at the two on the one hand and other hand statements. He says that the old covenant is weak and unprofitable. That's strong statements, isn't it? You may go back to the text I'm quoting from 2 Corinthians and find Paul say the same thing there. That it was ineffectual, written on tablets of stone, not on flesh hard, and all these comparisons that Paul gives there to talk about the ineffectual nature of, of the old covenant compared to the new covenant. In the same way here, he says it's weak and unprofitable. What does he mean? It was never purposed to do what God ultimately wanted done in Christ because it isn't done in Christ. The old covenant was a temporary covenant, if you will, a temporal covenant, a weak covenant, a unprofitable covenant. Now, it did many things that God intended it for it to do, but in terms of what we are getting in Christ, it could not accomplish it. Again, how could you be made right before a holy and righteous God through the Old Covenant, not under the Old Covenant? John Owen once said, many were saved under the Old Covenant, but none through the Old Covenant. Right? So how could we be saved under the Old Covenant? Those who do this law shall live by it, perfect, perfectly keeping it. In that sense, <clears throat> it was not able to save us. It was weak and unprofitable. But now look Once he's described it that way, at two things he says has happened. On the one hand, there is an annulling, annulling of the former commandment. What's he mean here? As the antitype has come, right, the type loses its significance in some way. This is really the entire argument of Hebrews, isn't it? Because what's he saying? If you understand the fullness that's come in Christ, how can you return 
to the partial, the shadow, or the type? How can you go back to the synagogue under the priesthood of Levi if you've seen the fullness of what is offered in the high priesthood of Christ? Because you can't get from Levi what you can get from Christ. And again, we would want to remind you that this is at a time uh, most scholars believe that the temple was still functioning. This letter was written at such a time. So there was the idea, we can go back to the, to the priesthood of Levi, we can go back to the sacrifices and all the things that have, uh, have been for our people for all these years. And this author says, you really can't. Because here's the thing, once that has been superseded by the will of God, by the plan of God, once Christ has come in fulfillment of all those things, there is no significance left salvifically at all. There never really was. You couldn't be saved under the law anyway. But there's no way to go back to it. Look at the foolishness of that. He says the law, look at it again. From the one hand, there is the annulling of the former covenant or commandment because of its weakness and unprofitability. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing complete. What person can we read about in the Old Testament? Name one, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Name one for us who kept the law perfectly and was saved. It wasn't its purpose. The law wasn't purposed for that. But again, notice what he's saying. There is something that perfects us. What is it? Standing in Christ. Because we're not standing in our own righteousness, we're standing in His perfect righteousness. We are reconciled to a holy and righteous God in Christ. So again, it was never the purpose of the law to perfect us. But the point is this, it pointed us to a better hope, a better high priest, a better Savior, a better sacrifice. All of those things are shown to us there and brings us this better hope, which we want to think about for a minute, because this author has said much about hope, hasn't he? If you look at the end of the previous chapter, he says, this is verse 19 of chapter 6, this hope, we talked about this not that long ago, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. The hope that we have in Christ is like an anchor to our soul, sure and steadfast. What does that mean? Can't drift away, can't be blown away, can't be stolen from us, can't be shaken by earthly tremors. We might be shaken, but our hope is not shaken. That's the point. Can't be taken, can't be lost. We are anchored perfectly. We have a hope that is an anchor. It's an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. And why? Because it enters the presence behind the veil. It's an- we're anchored to Christ. You might even argue we're anchored in Christ. Anchored in Christ. That's the hope that we have. Where the forerunner has entered for us. For us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, he could never do that as a priest according to the order of Levi. First of all, he couldn't have been a priest according to the order of Levi. He was of Judah. But even if he somehow could have been, if he was a Levite, which again would not be within keeping of the Scriptures, the Levitical priesthood could never allow this. There would be no anchor, eternally anchored, perfectly secure. It couldn't offer it because it wasn't God's intention to offer it that way. He offered it in the new covenant in Christ Jesus. A better hope. A better hope. A secure hope. An eternal hope. Our salvation, our status before God, our peace with God is secured perfectly by Christ because we stand in His righteousness and that can't be shaken. Won't be lost, won't be denied, won't anything. This is the entire point that Paul gets at in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? Through what Christ did, we have peace with God. Not temporary, not gone tomorrow because God somehow changed. He doesn't change. And our status doesn't change because we stand in Christ. In Christ. Why does this author in chapter 6 make such a point that you need to make sure you're in Christ? Because if you're not in Christ, you have no security. Right? You have no security outside of Christ. In fact, you have no hope outside of Christ. But if you are in Christ, you are anchored to Christ and in Christ, perfectly secure. You stand in a new status of having peace with God. No longer at enmity with God in Adam. Now at peace with God in Christ. And he says, if we have that peace with God through Jesus Christ, we also have access access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Notice, please, he's talking about a standing that you have, a standing in grace that you have now. No one can take it away from you. You've been offered it by grace in Christ. You have it in grace, anchored in Christ forevermore. So if you're in Christ, you have a hope that is certain and steadfast, a hope that is pointed to in the old covenant, but could only be realized in the effectual new covenant in Christ. There's a lot about this we're going to be looking at in chapter 8, the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, about what's said here, about the passing away, if you will, of the old covenant or its ineffectual nature. We're going to be dealing a lot with this in the, in the weeks ahead. But one thing that is important for us to realize here is that he's already laying the groundwork to talk about this. The Levitical priesthood could not avail what God ultimately planned for us. It had its purpose. It perfectly fulfilled the purpose he had for it. But for this greater purpose, it was ineffectual. It was never his intention that the old covenant would save. It was there to point us to Christ, and Christ is our Savior. So the takeaway is obvious here as we close in relation to the original recipients. How can you turn your back from Christ, who you've heard preached and proclaimed? How can you go back to the synagogue? What's there? A tired and superseded covenant? A priesthood that doesn't perfectly avail? I mean, look at the language he uses here. Again and again, what would you return to? An unprofitable and weak set of commandments and priesthood? When God has given you the very thing He intended all along. He has sent His Son. The promised seed that He told Abraham about. If you want to go back to Abraham and think about Melchizedek, think about the promise He gave of a seed. Paul says in Galatians, singular, even Christ, right? So this promise made that has been fulfilled in Christ, what are you returning back to? An imperfect system that itself pointed to what you've been told about here. So again, if you're in Christ, if you heed and hear what's being said, don't do something so foolish as that. Because if you were to, it would show us you are not in Christ. But what is there for us? Because I doubt there's anybody here today that's thinking about, I'm going to go to the synagogue next Sunday. You know, I doubt, I mean, maybe, but I doubt it. I hope not. But what is there for us? Well, first of all, we should think about the glory of Christ. How Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. You know, uh, Luther said when he understood Romans, understood how everything was fulfilled in Christ. He said, I went back and re- reread the Bible and all the scriptures was as if a new book, a new revelation, because he began to pick up on all those mentionings of grace and of, of shadows and types of Christ throughout the text. 
one thing we should do is be astonished at what God has accomplished in Christ. If you are His, you should rejoice. Because this text tells you you are anchored in Christ, and that anchor is unshakable. That's the job of an anchor, isn't it? To hold you in place through storms. If you're at sea and you're getting tossed to and fro, sometimes if you have no safe harbor to run to, you just try to drop an anchor. Right? You hope for a safe harbor. This, By the way, this letter points to both pictures, a safe harbor and an anchor. But if your hope is anything else this morning, there's a message here, isn't there? Because what this author says is there is nothing else that will avail. God has appointed nothing else to avail before Him. There's only one thing that makes peace eternally with Him. And that's a righteous standing that only comes in Christ. right? The perfect high priest. Not Levi. Not some form of paganism. There's only one way to be made right with God. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which points us to the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. That He is our perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect mediator and high priest. That He perfectly avails and perfectly gives us His righteousness in which we now stand. So again, this morning, if the Spirit of God is convincing you that you need Christ, then today is the day to trust in Him. Look unto Him. Trust in Him and be saved.